Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us this week in... Copenhagen. Yeah. Copenhagen. Yeah, Copenhagen. I really, I, I gather this has become almost, at least among some listeners, a game to try to guess where you are. I don't think anyone... Why would anyone have gotten it right yet? But um, anyway, Copenhagen. Uh, if you did get it right, I guess you can write to our email address. I don't know. You get some kind of prize. I don't know what that would be. But um, anyway, in the second half of the show, we are going to be talking about the economic legacy of Silvio Berlusconi, who just passed away. Uh, but first, something that's also from the news. The data point there is 35 square miles. That is the total area comprising about seven villages that the Ukrainian government has managed to bring under its own control and away from the control of the Russian military in the first week or so of its counter-offensive. The Ukrainians have launched the uh, offensive. They are making uh, advances. Uh, they, are they say they're liberating occupied territory one village at a time. Officials in Ukraine say the fighting is... The country's deputy defense minister said several eastern villages around Donetsk had been returned to Kiev's control. A lot of hopes are invested in this military operation, which is expected to last for the next several months. Uh, Many people are hoping that it could lay the groundwork for an end to the war even, whether through negotiations or even some kind of outright victory for Ukraine, or maybe just through some deepening relationship between Ukraine and the West. So yeah, we thought we'd try to look at this counter-offensive through some kind of economic lens. So Adam, the biggest event so far of this counter-offensive has been the destruction of a major dam in eastern Ukraine. Ukraine said Russia inflicted eco-terrorism on the country and blew up Kakovka Dam, the resulting floodwater sweeping across the south of the country. I wanted to ask what kind of economic damage has that dam's destruction already done in, in, in national terms? I mean, obviously, the damage itself is an economic fact, but... What kind of effort will it take to rebuild that dam? And then in terms of international repercussions, what are the effects of this release of all this water on agricultural yields for the rest of the world? Yeah, it's a really horrifying um, scenario that um, Ukraine is facing and the desperate people downstream of the dam. Um, the Kahovka Dam is the last link in a six-dam system that formed the Dnieper River Cascade. It was finished in the 1950s um, in the sort of high era of Soviet modernism and optimism about ecological control. It was designed to do three things, to secure flood control. In the 30s, Kyiv had been 
visited by terrible flooding, um, to provide hydroelectric power and to supply water for irrigation of the otherwise rather dry um, southern regions of Ukraine and Crimea. We talk, you know, in rather sloppy terms about Ukraine as a breadbasket, but not all of it is actually suitable for cultivation and the south is too dry without um, irrigation and the reservoirs of the Dnieper River were, were crucial to providing that resource. And that also gives you an idea of what happens when you unleash 18 cubic kilometers of water, which is what was in the reservoir, uh, on the downstream population um, and the society in cities and urban areas and villages that are downstream. I mean, the dam provided drinking water, irrigation water, power for 3 million people, um, the torrent that was unleashed uh, immediately after the, the break um, is estimated at 14,000 cubic meters of water per second. 14,000 cubic meters. That's six times more than flows over the Niagara Falls, apparently. I mean, I find these numbers just so mind-blowing. I, I, I don't know. I don't, this, anyway, this is, what I, this is what I've seen cited. I mean, it's an absolutely, if you've ever seen the Niagara Falls, it's an absolutely terrifying idea of being downstream of this. In economic terms, it will disrupt electricity supply. Um, it threatens fresh water supply to perhaps 100,000 people downstream. But from an economic point of view, to speak strictly in those terms, the crucial issue is that it disrupts the canal system of 12,000 uh, kilometers of canals that run out from this system, a huge, incredible network of irrigation canals that supply not the majority of Ukraine's breadbasket, but a considerable part of it. 584,000 hectares of agricultural land downstream um, of the dam. In 2021, they were responsible for a harvest of 4 million tonnes of grain and oil seeds worth about $1.5 billion. And, and all of that now is in jeopardy. So this will ripple through, and it immediately did ripple through global grain markets. Um, restoring this is a project of billions of dollars, because first of all, you would actually need to get the river under control. You'd have to remediate the damage done by the flooding. You have to rebuild the dam itself. You have to restore the canals that are crucial for irrigation. It's a huge huge loss that's been inflicted on the entire region. So given where the fighting is happening, it seems like one of the goals of the Ukrainian government is to take back some of the land that Russia has managed to capture that has created a land bridge to Crimea, which Russia took from Ukraine several years before this current war. If it managed to do that, would Crimea still be a viable economic part of Russia? Well, I mean, to talk about Crimea as viable in economic terms under conditions of conflict between Ukraine and Russia is a bit euphemistic at the best of times. And after all, they have been in conflict since 2013, manifestly since 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea. Um, and amongst the issues at stake in that conflict has been water all along, um, because Crimea is really hot and dry. I mean, it's truly like it's a Mediterranean style climate. And it depends on fresh water from the Soviet area canal system to, to function, or at least it did. And in retaliation for the annexation of Crimea um, in 2014, Ukraine shut those Soviet era canals down. 
So from 2014 onwards, Crimea ran progressively dry. Um, agriculture on the Crimean Peninsula collapsed, um, falling by about 90% in terms of hectares under cultivation. The towns of Crimea ran short of water and water rationing was introduced. And, and it wasn't for several years, really, I think, until Moscow realized the seriousness of the situation and then began pouring billions of rubles into the uh, Crimean infrastructure. They famously, of course, built the Kersh Bridge um, at the cost of $3.7 billion, the longest bridge in Europe, but also invested in uh, aquifers. And there was even talk of desalination plants to keep Crimea going. Effectively, uh, tens of billions of dollars flowed from Moscow's budget at the expense of other investment. Um, Initially, the war actually allowed Ukraine to reopen the Soviet-era canals and restart the flow of water from the reservoirs to Crimea. And as a result, Crimea's reservoirs are now overflowing. So the collapse of the dam, the destruction of the dam doesn't immediately threaten an acute water shortage there. But in the long run, I mean, the situation is hopeless. I mean, almost regardless of what happens with the offensive, um, though that, of course, would really put a dagger in the heart of the Russian project if the Ukrainians do indeed succeed in breaking through. And if you look on the map, it's an extremely exposed position. You would certainly expect them to attack into the joint, you know, on the, the bend, the elbow, if you like, of the the Russian line. How on earth, I mean, in the long run, Moscow expects to maintain this as a viable region is, is very, very unclear. Certainly, I mean, there's been reports, perhaps unsurprisingly, that the Crimean tourist season hasn't been good for the last two years. But that's just the sort of rather macabre illustration of a much more general question. Yeah, let's shift to talking about possible endgames for the war. Uh, you know, the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO on some sort of expedited timeline still seems to be on the table, at least in some countries in the West. Would that be consistent with the history of NATO until now, or would that be a completely kind of discontinuous break with the history of NATO? It would be a discontinuous break, I think, you have to say, because to bring a member of NATO into the fold that had an unresolved border dispute, let alone being a country at war, um, exposes all the other members of NATO to to jeopardy in the sense that under Article 5, the, the Ukraine would be within its rights to ask for assistance and to, to trigger a, a, an alliance uh, situation that would require the others to intervene on its behalf. They would degree, exercise a degree of discretion in how they chose to respond, but it would be an inherently dangerous situation. But nevertheless, and remarkably, several members of NATO, notably in the Baltic, are actually arguing that Ukraine should be given a clear and accelerated timeline to membership, even something akin to immediate access. And, you know, it depends a little bit on the how seriously you take the rhetoric, but the Prime Minister of Latvia declared that the only chance for peace in Europe is when Ukraine will be in NATO. Well, does he mean long-term peace or does he mean peace now, right? Which would be a truly radical demand. Um, and I've been at meetings recently in Germany where representatives of both Poland, Ukraine and the Baltic states simply discount the risk of a confrontation with Russia, which they regard as a bluff that the West has been far too frightened by for too long. And it's time to get over that. Um, frankly, from the American perspective, given America's awesome power on the one hand, but also responsibility in wielding thermonuclear weapons, you can see why the Biden administration is in fact being quite firm in so far resisting these calls. And it's 
backed by Germany in this as well, which sees the same risk. What's emerged as a kind of safe place is the promise made at the NATO summit in Bucharest in 2008, which many of us regard as, as the fatal first step down the path that we're now on, which is when the, the Bush administration in its dying days, strongly urged by East European NATO members, opened the door to eventual NATO membership for Ukraine and, and Georgia, precipitating the clash in Georgia later that year and launching you know, Putin on his course of claiming that you know, ultimately Russia has to act to forestall uh, Ukraine's eventual NATO membership. That is now adopted as the defensive position of the Biden administration, which says, look, nothing has to change. We're fully committed in due course in the long term to Ukraine's accession to NATO. But, but right now, not, not yet. The question is whether or not the East European states and Ukraine will play along with this now. And that's going to be the, the balancing act that Biden and the Germans, I think, have to perform. I should add here that uh, if anyone's interested in the more assertive arguments being made for Ukraine's membership, foreign policy just ran an article by Tom Malinowski, a former congressman, former Obama administration official, making the argument for Ukraine to be admitted right away. You can find that on foreignpolicy.com. But the other argument that tends to be floated in Washington is that the United States could provide Ukraine with security guarantees uh, similar to the sort that it provides to Israel and that that might be sufficient to protect Ukraine. Uh, I mean, what sort of partnership exactly does that imply? What scale of assistance, what sort of economic commitment are we talking about here? Yeah, this appears to be the solution that Biden's team are briefing everyone on right now and have been, I think, for the last two months or so. Um, because it's somewhat, it's something short of NATO, and yet obviously Israel has a totemic value for Congress and for American politics. Um, it would be a commitment to supply Ukraine with modern military hardware uh, to effectively ensure that it couldn't lose, but it would stop short of a legally binding treaty, and it would certainly not involve any kind of NATO commitment. And it, it's anchored on, you know kit, like military equipment. I think the move, for instance, to provide Ukraine with F-16 multipurpose jets was thought of in these terms. Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, certainly seems to be speaking about it in these terms because because, it's, because the F-16s won't be operational for six months or so. And so he presented them as a kind of down payment on the future security order. So the more that we see America highlighting that kind of military support, the more I think we're talking about an Israel-style longer-term security promise and less about immediate support for the current spring offensive that's ongoing. In the midst of all of this, it has to be said that the economic side of things gets pretty short shrift. Um, and as always, it's and to my frustration, it's quite difficult actually to get serious in-depth running commentary on Ukraine's economy. Ukraine's statistical office, which I've been able to access, um, suggests that Ukraine is recovering somewhat from the really devastating shock it suffered last year, but is still well down on its pre-war levels of economic activity, as you'd expect. This is an economy under enormous stress. But talking about the long-term security order for Ukraine, it would clearly have to include not just military aid, but and not either, I think, long-term reconstruction investment, but immediate help to just allow it to pay its bills. I mean, right now, you know, the US and the Europeans are chipping in around about $35 billion a year. 
So some version, some element of that would presumably also have to continue as a as a running subsidy to sustain uh, Ukraine's economy and society over the medium term. Finally, I wanted to ask about some historical analogies that could maybe help us understand the future of the current front lines in Ukraine and, and the lasting effects of the war. Sometimes the fighting in Ukraine is compared to the trench warfare of World War I in Europe. And if that's the case, I'm curious whether that war did lasting damage to the present day, even in the places where the trenches once ran through in France and Belgium and other places of Western Europe. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, very intensive warfare of the type that we're seeing in Ukraine does leave lasting damage. I mean, in World War One, it was it was overwhelmingly artillery, and artillery is also the main source of destruction in the current conflict. Um, you know, well over half, perhaps as much as three quarters of the casualties are inflicted by artillery, and it is also artillery that leaves the longest long term damage because it leaves so much. So many shell fragments in the ground, unexploded ordnance litters the battlefield, um, and so large parts of the World War One battlefield still can't safely uh, be, be be farmed, and are just not worth farming. Um, so they grow back in you know various kinds of wilderness. In in the case of Ukraine, you also have to deal with a hazard which wasn't very pronounced in World War One, which was much more common in World War Two, which is mine warfare, with the deployment of hundreds of thousands, if not more. Um, booby traps and, and mines, um, which which make farming the land extremely dangerous um, for years, if not decades afterwards. Well, there you go. It sounds like there's no... Once you've released the reservoirs of artillery and hatred, and I guess also the dams, uh, doesn't seem like there's any good outcome, really. In any case, we will have to take a break here. Uh, we will be back in a second to talk about Silvio Berlusconi. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know. Not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carried around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Our next data point is 86. That is the age at which Silvio Berlusconi died this past week. Berlusconi, of course, was the multiple-time Prime Minister of Italy. And then, of course, one of Europe's most recognisable political leaders, colourful, controversial. He was Prime Minister of Italy at three different times, first in the mid-90s and then up between 2008 and 2011. But he was also more than that. He was the herald, in some ways, of our present age of populism. He was a self-made billionaire who allied with the far right, was plagued by scandals only to be repeatedly re-elected in his country. If that sounds like other politicians in the United States and elsewhere, that's uh, not entirely an accident or not entirely a coincidence. We thought we'd look into the economic legacy of Berlusconi after his passing. So Adam, what exactly were the economic dimensions of Berlusconi's rise in the first place? Obviously, it was enabled by Berlusconi's own economic biography as a self-made man, but did the crumbling of the old Italian political orthodoxy have an economic dimension of its own? I mean, did the old establishment in Italy fail in a way that led to populism's rise? Absolutely. I mean, Berlusconi's rise was conditioned by a power shift, but we shouldn't underestimate his own agency. I mean, he truly was an innovative business person. I mean, more in the mold of uh, Rupert Murdoch than uh, Donald Trump, right? Somebody who really changed Europe's media scene. He started out in property development, but not with any old development. He did this extraordinary project called Milano 2, so Milan 2, which was this sort of fantasy 1970s postmodern, like a Vegas-style comprehensive environment. And it was actually within that housing development that he launched his first cable TV channel because you could kind of live in an enclosed Berlusconi world, which in 1970s Italy was quite attractive because this was a period of social and political turmoil, terrorism. You could kind of retreat into this gated community where you'd be served up the light entertainment for which he became 
so famous. And in the 1980s, then with his connections to Bettina Craxi, the, the Socialist Party kingmaker, this blossomed into his media giant, the media set, the private TV empire, which which created the Rai channels, uh, which you can you know watch in any hotel room in Europe today. And it pervades a, a really distinctive vision. I mean, this is where I think the sort of counter establishment side of Berlusconi came to the fore because he was offering something that neither the old school Christian Democrats or the old alternative to the Christian Democrats, the Italian Communist Party, could really get behind, right? It was this new vision of of affluence, of leisure, of enjoyment, of titillation, of sexualized imagery. I mean, and it impacted you know, the vast majority of Italians in one way or the other, um, even before he was a politician. So if you look at TV audiences, it's, it's estimated that the amount of time Italians spent watching TV rose from two and a half hours a day in 1988 to three and a half hours a day by 1995. So that's a huge increase in the suck, if you like, on people's time that was driven largely by Berlusconi's empire. It was Berlusconi that brought, you know, Japanese cartoons, you know, get your manga and so on to Italy. His collaborators describe him as a as a utopian almost. I mean, he was a you know a man who who offered this seductive vision. I mean, he himself I did do think like to think of himself as the ultimate seducer, and it was that really that that transformative vision that that he personally stood for and his empire pushed. That is a he is a bulldozer, uh, but the path was was cleared for him by the catastrophe of 1992, which is really a multidimensional catastrophe of the Italian establishment. On the one hand, it's a, it's a catastrophe of corruption with uh, just an avalanche of charges being brought against the Christian Democrats and the Socialist Party, including Berlusconi's backers and ultimately Berlusconi himself, charges he escaped by entering, as he said, the field and then winning the 94 elections, which then put him in a position to escape prosecution. It was a public order crisis with a massive showdown in 92 between the Italian state and the mafia who actually took to attacking the magistrates, so really declaring almost civil war on the Italian state. And it was also a moment of a huge, devastating financial crisis. I mean, this was really the moment where the Italian state came closest to collapse, a a run on the lira, a massive surge in interest rates triggered in part by the costs of German unification, all converging on Italy in a very dramatic way. And that's what opened the door to Berlusconi as a sort of alternative vision of Italy's future in in the 94 elections. So what was Berlusconi's economic program while he was in office? I mean, Italy's economy has been famously stagnant for several decades. Did Berlusconi make that stagnation worse? Did he cause it in the first place? Or did he not really affect it one way or the other? I mean, I think it's unfair to blame Berlusconi personally for Italy's stagnation. I mean, that that really became truly severe and crippling after 2008 with the Eurozone crisis. But he did reflect, you might say, the conservative complacent tendencies uh, within Italian society and within the Italian economy, he, frankly, reveled in them. Right, the, the symptomatic of a of a less than dynamic uh, and entrepreneurial culture. He also personified what one American economic anthropologist unkindly referred to as the amoral familialism of Italian society. I mean, uh, Silvio Berlusconi was a man who regarded 
you know, conformity to the law as, as really something of a game. Um, he famously remarked and controversially remarked that he regarded law-abiding magistrates of the Italian state as anthropologically different from normal people, because normal people would re- re- presumably ruthlessly pursue their personal interest and the interests of those closest to them, regardless of the law. He had an agenda. I mean, he was, you could, you could say, a kind of Reaganite figure in the sense that he offered this sort of new dawn in Italy, a new morning in Italy. Uh, he wanted to get there by way of reducing the complexity of, of Italy's Baroque tax system. He wanted to introduce a two-tiered income tax system. He promised to halve the unemployment rate by getting Italy's economy going again. This is his government of the, of the 2000s, the one where he presided over Italy between 2001 and 2006, the longest period in office that he had, or indeed anyone else has had as Italy's prime minister. He also committed to financing major public works and promised to raise the minimum monthly pension rate for elderly retired Italians. Of that dynamic agenda, very little gets realised in the early 2000s. The one bit that does is the advantage given to elderly Italians. Italian public spending massively favours the elderly over the young, whose educational experience over the period of Berlusconi's Uh, period in power declined dramatically in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s. Italy was converging with European norms in terms of uh, higher education provision from the 90s onwards, it diverges. So Italy now within the rich country club of the OECD has the lowest share of young people with university and college degrees, barely more than one quarter of Italians. Whereas one third of Italians, 35%, have very little more than basically high school leaving certificates. So there is a chronic failure here, which Berlusconi was unable and I think ultimately unwilling to shift. He prioritized vote getting, he prioritized the legal survival of his own empire. And he prioritised the relationship with the Lega, the even more conservative right-wing northern business uh, interests, tensions with whom paralysed essentially his governments in the early 2000s and meant that he was very hard-pressed to make any of the dramatic changes that he wanted to see in Italian society. So in the end, yes, a rather sort of insubstantial agenda, but one that promised more fundamentally than it could ever deliver. Clearly, a major part of Berlusconi's legacy will be the ethical scandals, the sexual scandals and corruption allegations that clouded his governments, as well as the kind of flaunting his sort of blatantly non-technocratic style, injecting that into Italian politics. I'm curious whether those factors had an economic dimension of their own. Do Does that kind of populist style with all of the scandals that attend them, do they have a measurable economic impact on Italy? Do investors generally avoid countries enveloped in these kinds of scandals and media events? Or are they really just a distraction from kind of ongoing economic events? Well, I think the essential thing to understand about Berlusconi's period of of prominence is that it was always contained within another agenda set for Italy by its economic technocratic elite, which was the idea of using convergence with the other European countries and ultimately joining the euro, the common European currency, in the late 1990s and early 2000s in the first wave as the absolute priority of economic policy. So in a sense, there's a sort of bifurcated structure to Italy's 
economics and political economy in this period. There is the populist show, uh, scandal-ridden, manipulative that Berlusconi is performing. And on the other hand, there is this rather rigorous program of convergence. And the two balance each other out to a degree, as it were. Berlusconi delivers the circuses and the vincolo esterno, so-called, the external constraint, the tying of Italy to Europe, delivers the discipline, and this limits the damage, quote-unquote, that Berlusconi can do, if you like. He himself is not a passive factor when it comes to Italy's economy either. I mean, he is, has the instincts of a deal-maker, and he, he does rather more dramatic deals than than somebody like Trump is ever able or interested or inspired to do. I mean, Berlusconi pursued a very active policy of rapprochement with Russia, um, uh, with Turkey, and, and, and with Libya. And what drove that was his in, you know, fundamentally correct perception that Italy's vulnerability was its lack of uh, local sources of energy. And so what Italy needed to do was to um, rebuild relations with Libya. He actually uh, made a $5 billion promise to Gaddafi's regime as compensation for Italy's genocidal policies in, in Libya in the, in the interwar period, with a view to then, however, making Italy a gas hub for Libya's energy exports. And the same sort of rationale connected Berlusconi to figures like Putin as well, with whom he maintained very cordial personal relations. We spend too much time criticizing the Germans for their supposedly distinctive sellout to Russia. In fact, Italy was at least as deeply connected as Germany, because unlike um, in Germany, of course, the left wing of Italy as well is also reasonably favorably disposed towards, first of all, the Soviet Union, and then the Russia, the Italian Communist Party was, of course, profoundly connected. So companies like Fiat, for instance, built car factories in Russia. Berlusconi continues that line. I think where his scandals really began to disrupt economic policymaking is, is at the height of the Eurozone crisis. And it's really in 2011 that it all comes to a head with his legal troubles, his tax troubles, his corrupt, the corruption allegations, and then, of course, the case of his relationship with um, the underaged early dancer, Ruby the, the heart stealer, that, that ultimately collapsed his coalition at home and made him vulnerable to the machinations against him in 2011, as the Eurozone crisis reached its hike. At that point, I think it became clear that he was no longer a safe pair of hands at a moment of really maximum peril, not just for Italy, but for Europe. And just to clarify those machinations against Berlusconi, at that point in 2011, he was essentially forced from office by other European leaders, both at the European Central Bank or other heads of state, including Germany and France, I think, so he was essentially pushed out under economic duress imposed on Italy. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You, you point out that they were sort of in a dialectical relationship. You know, Berlusconi is the leader of a, a kind of domestic circus as Europe was helping guide the Italian economy. But at some point, Europe decided that Berlusconi couldn't continue yeah, on the assumption that he just was too much of an economic disaster. But is it more accurate to say that Berlusconi was an economic disaster for Italy and Europe? Or looking back on this whole euro crisis and just generally the economics of this period, was it Europe that failed Italy during Berlusconi's time in office? I don't think it's even a contest. I mean, the Italian elite gambled on domestic reform for sure. And Berlusconi's rise contributed to a failure to deliver on that. But they also gambled on reasonable conditions prevailing within the Eurozone. 
and the Eurozone monetary and financial management between 2008 and 2012 was just a full-on historic disaster, not just for Italy, but for Greece, for Spain, for Portugal, for Ireland, even ultimately for the rich countries of the European North. And so Italy becomes collateral damage of that wider failure. It's a very complicated situation. Ultimately, I think there's no doubt that the French-German governments were in conversations with amongst others, the, the the Obama administration, about pushing Berlusconi out. They could only do that, however, because they had anchors inside Italy. So notably, uh, Italian President Giorgio Napolitano, who you know was a very old hand of Cold War politics in Italy, who ultimately put the dagger in. But before that, already, the Berlusconi had really lost his majority in the Italian parliament over the summer. So he'd become very, very vulnerable. The consequences of that, however, are really dramatic because... The chief and immediate beneficiaries of the coup against uh, Berlusconi are the populists, uh, most notably um, Five Star, which emerges as a sort of party of protest against this overt manipulation of the Italian political system. But more indirectly, the Lega, the nationalist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant politics of the far right, because in that same year, Italy is betrayed not just on the Eurozone front, but also by the aggressive intervention by... NATO by Britain, France and the United States against Libya, against Gaddafi, who had been, you know, Berlusconi's notional anchor. And why why does Italy need that stability? Because you can see Libya from southern Italy on a fine day, right? And so Libya and Gaddafi's regime was a bulwark against massive migration from Africa to Italy. Once that falls and it's, Libya descends into chaos, the doors are open to a chaotic movement, a desperate movement of migrants, which 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 affects Greece and Italy most of all. Berlusconi, to his credit, one has to say, understood the strategic significance of and attempted to stabilise by means of a deal with Gaddafi. So the, this is a politics of dirty hands, but one at which he at least grasped the significance of. So there you go. Yeah, the disparity between style and, and substance a bit. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code Twos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or you can email us podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. 
I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.